Good morning, everyone. This morning we are continuing a message series based upon God's Word as it is found in First Peter. The series is called A Fresh Focus on a New Beginning. And during the last two weeks, Shelton and Claire have highlighted for us the sure hope that we have in Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to continue to move forward by turning our attentions to chapter 2 of First Peter, and specifically verses 1 through 10. So if you would, uh, go ahead and turn there with me now in your Bibles, if you brought them with you, and hold that place for just a while so that I can share a bit of background information with you. For those of you who did not bring your Bibles, the verses will appear on the video screens here in just a while. Shelton and Claire have done a wonderful job of orienting us to the context of this letter. And I just want to add a little bit more emphasis to some things that they've been saying, if I could. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says that these folks to whom he's writing, he says they're strangers in this world, stuck out in these strangely named places called Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Other English translations say that they are aliens or foreigners. Some translations say exiles. And I think sometimes when we read this, we just we just kind of spiritualize verse one there. And we think, oh, that's right. Our true citizenship, it's in heaven. We're just strangers in this world, pilgrims making our way. And, yeah, there's things going on in my in the world right now. But we don't need to pay too much attention to that because my true home is in heaven. And I'll be there. And when I get there, everything will be right. Well, that would be wonderful if that's actually what Peter was saying. But it's not. You see, Peter was talking to real life exiles. Here's the deal. Romans had this habit of forcibly resettling people around the empire with two goals in mind. First, it was to take over new lands that they had conquered out in the boonies by populating these territories with people from overcrowded Rome. And then secondly, it was a great way for the Romans to deal with people they didn't know what to do with. Maybe the Romans perceived them as troublemakers or something like that. And so they would simply forcibly resettle them out into these lands as a way of getting rid of the problem. Well, guess what? Back in the time of the New Testament, the Roman historian Suetonius he wrote a short passage in his biography of the emperor Claudius. Claudius was right before Nero, by the way. And it says this, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, meaning the emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Back then, the Romans did not differentiate between Jews and Christians. They thought the Christians were just a Jewish sect. And the Christian movement was so new that Sotonius did not even know how to spell Christus correctly, which is a Latin spelling for Christ. So he spelled their leader's name as Crestus. But despite Suetonius' misspelling here, what we have is the first evidence of the Christian movement beyond that of the Bible, somewhere between 41 and 54 A.D. And it says that Claudius pitched them out of Rome because they were causing some kind of ruckus in the synagogues. And guess where Suetonius says the emperor exiled them? Well, it would have been five remote provinces called Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
You see, the people to whom Peter was writing were real life exiles, strangers to the world around them, foreigners in a world where they had been dumped. And the people who lived there out in these provinces, well, they didn't want them there. So it didn't feel very good for these believers to be shipped out to nowheresville. It was kind of like being a part of a Broadway singing group on in New York City and then being dumped out to be the solo singing act at the general store in Pumpkintown. Folks, it didn't feel good. And then one of the regulars there at the general store comes up and says, you're not from around here, are you? It was all very disorienting for these believers. The truth of the matter was, these believers in Jesus were literally homeless. They were on the margins of the society in which they lived, resident aliens, as some would say. And Peter's trying to help them learn how to live then and there in that place as exiled followers of Jesus. So let me ask you. Do you feel like an exile in your own country sometimes? Like an outsider looking in. Maybe you feel like the world has moved on apart from you. Church and faith and God used to seem to be at the, at the center of things so much in our culture, but it doesn't seem like that anymore. And you don't quite know what to do. You might be tempted to think, well, maybe if we just do the same things we've always done, only better, it'll fix things. Maybe not. You know, I wonder if what Peter had to say to those Christian exiles so many centuries ago, I wonder if he might have something to say to us today. I'm going to ask that you would join with me now in reading from this passage of Scripture Again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. My friends, listen to the Word of God. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, the living stone, Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those of you who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they are destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May the Lord God bless to us this reading of a portion of his word. So I was at Costco about two weeks ago, and I 
ordered some hearing aids. Now, they came in two days ago, and I've got them on right now. I would show them to the choir, but uh, they're not here. But but they're they're back here. My earlobes are pretty packed right now between the J-Lo microphone and the eyeglasses and the hearing aids. They're all packed back in there. Now, you're thinking, <clears throat> he's not old enough to have my uh, hearing aids. Now, that's what you're thinking, right? Right. Okay, good. Well, you know what? Maybe I'm not that old. But uh, you see, when I was in high school and college, I used to play in these rock and roll cover bands. And we play stuff like <clears throat> 38 Special and Molly Hatchet, Journey, Rush, Ario Speedwagon. Folks, there's a lot about me you do not know. Guys my age right now are going, yeah. And it's cool, and the, and the songs are going off in the heads right now. The older folks are going, who? <clears throat> and the teenagers and the high school kids, they're going, oh, yeah, 80s bands. To see, it wasn't playing out in public that gave me the, the little bit of hearing loss that I have. It was the practices that we had out in the shed behind the drummer's house. So you always want to practice at the drummer's house so he doesn't have to move his kid around and everything. But here's the thing. This guy beat these things unmercilessly. And for years, every night after we practiced, I still remember this, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, my ears would be ringing all the way from the end of practice till I got home. And I knew then, way back, it's going to be an issue one day. Sure enough, here I am. 35 years later, and it is. But anyway, I took a hearing loss test, and it's not too bad, really, but I, but I like to listen to music, and so I just knew that there was something on my CDs and albums. I knew that there was some, some frequencies, some things that I was missing. So you know when you go to pick out hearing aids, you get to choose the color, right? So the lady working there at Costco, she shows me this palette of options, and I'm thinking... You know, I don't want to make a big deal about these things, and I don't want anybody else to make a big deal about them either. So I'll, I'll find a color that blends in with the color of my hair. You know where this is going, right? So among the choices that, uh, that she laid out there, there was this kind of light gray. And I'm thinking, perfect. That color will just blend right in. So that's what I chose. So I pointed out to the lady who's helping me there at Costco, and she looks at me and she says, no, no, that color is too dark for your hair color. Well, there weren't any white options. She talked me into a beige color that matches my ears, which I guess is probably the direction I should have gone all along. You know, sometimes we don't always see ourselves the way we really are. And that's both physically and spiritually. You and I can so easily become wrapped up in all kinds of identities that our world would like to give us. There's a whole industry out there called marketing, right? Uh, and this industry tries to get us to identify with whatever product they're selling. And the most successful marketers will find a way to convince us that our identity can be shaped in some attractive way by doing what? Buying what they're selling. Little kids are taught early on that they are consumers. That's who they are. 
when they see the advertisements between the Sunday, I mean the Saturday morning cartoons, they still have those, right? I'm not even sure. So Peter is writing to this group of people out in the boonies, stuck in the middle of nowhere, and he's writing to them about their identities. And as I said, they're literally strangers to the world around them. Exiles in their hearts and in their minds and then literally physically in their bodies. And what you used to think was normal was not so much anymore. In the midst of this, Peter writes to them to help them form their identities around a living and eternal hope based upon the goodness and holiness of God. And in order to help them do this, he does two specific things here in these verses. One, he points them to Jesus' identity as the source of their own. And then secondly, he points them to an identity training course for believers in exile, which just happens to be the same way that Jesus had trained Peter when he was a young disciple of the Master. Now, I want us to see these two things this morning. So if you would, let's step together in the first three verses in chapter 2. Peter says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The first point of Peter's strategy for identity formation for believers in exile is this. He uses this illustration of how a newborn baby craves to eat to show us how to grow in our relationship with God in exile. So here's the thing. Not a physician, but I have personally tracked the development of two newborns myself. And I would say this in my professional opinion, that there are generally three passions that a newborn has and three alone, and that would be eating, sleeping, and doing something in their diapers. That's it. And it appears to me that probably the only thing that they have any kind of control of whatsoever uh, might be their desire to eat. That's just about it. But even that desire is driven by a pre-programmed instinct within them. A baby's instinct tells her or him to eat in order to be satisfied. But then a cycle develops, a feedback loop. Since the milk tastes so good on their little taste buds and the experience of feeding is so wonderful, guess what? They want to eat more and more and more. And that's good. And it's the same with us. Remember last week when Pastor Claire, she said, uh, we always have to ask what the therefore is therefore. Well, in our case this week in verse one, in our case, if we jump back to the very end of chapter one. Peter says, and you and I have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. In other words, God, by a supernatural move of his Holy Spirit, comes into our lives by his living word and he gives us life just like babies. And then he rewires our spiritual taste buds so that now God instinctually tastes sweet in our souls rather than sour. And when that happens, we can't get enough. We start craving him, craving to know more about him, craving to know more about who we are in relation to him, craving to know our true identity in a lost world. 
And as we start reading through the pages of this word, we begin hearing all throughout words like this spoken to you, spoken to me. Chosen. Loved. Forgiven. Bold. Confident. Renewed. Royal priest. God's own possession. Member of God's household. Rich in grace. Redeemed. Child of God. Fearfully and wonderfully made. I could go on and on. Friends, in a crazy world that wants to tell us who we are and to whom we belong, that is our identity. And it's a gift. But what about all this stuff that Peter writes about in chapter 2, verse 1? Malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. What's that all about? It seems that even though our true identity is found in Christ, as we've said, somehow, someway, all that stuff still continues to hang around us. So how do we rid ourselves of it? That's what Peter asks us to do. How do we do that? Do we just try hard? This past week, I was working with equipping our first group of commissioned lay pastors here, and, and we were listening to a Christian author talk about the difference between trying and training. Trying is like this. Some of the guys in this church, they like to bike up Paris Mountain on Saturday morning sometimes. And they like to do this for fun. I don't call that fun. I call that torture. And uh, anyway, I happened to mention to one of them one day that I have a bike. I have a bike. It's been out in the garage. I haven't ridden it for six years. Anyway, and they were like, Brian, you need to come with us on Saturday morning and try it. And I get this picture in my mind of Napoleon's march back from Moscow. And they're trudging through the snow in the dead of winter. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. I need to train on level ground for a while before I get up or try to get up on that mountain. Friends, it's the same way with our life with God. Apostle Paul in his first letter to Corinthians writes how an athlete will go into strict training in order to win the prize. And he calls us as believers to do the same. To train means to arrange our lives around practices that will allow us to do eventually what we cannot do now by effort. For followers of Jesus, this means engaging in practices and rhythms of life. Rhythms that Jesus himself taught us while maintaining a healthy diet on his delightful energy-giving word. When we do this, just like an athlete who strengthens their muscles and their lungs, we will begin to reflexively respond to situations and things that challenge our identities. Not in the way that Peter describes here in verse 1, but by the fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Friends, this is how we grow up in our salvation and rid ourselves of what Paul calls the works of the flesh. 
Now, we could spend lots of time this morning talking about specific spiritual practices that can help to train us to be like Christ. But for time's sake, can't get into all of those. But needless to say, there are a lot of resources out there on Christian discipleship and spiritual formation. Uh, many of them can help us attend to Jesus' call to follow him. But the key thing to remember is to ground all of these practices in feeding on his word. Let's move forward. Verse 4. Peter moves us to the next set of directions related to Christian identity formation for believers in exile. And he says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 1, verse 1 again, at the very beginning there, that Greek word that's translated as scattered, it literally means this, without a house, or without home, or without family. It's the very opposite of the word that Peter uses here when he talks about a spiritual house. The Christians to whom Peter was writing literally had become outsiders in their culture, homeless, unfamily. And once again, I think it's so easy for us to read these verses with with modern Western eyes uh, rather than the eyes of the biblical writers. As modern Westerners, we are taught to form our identities first as individuals. This is who I make myself. And that's what's important. That's where we start. But in the ancient world, it was the opposite. It was the group to which you belonged and the people that you hung out with who made all the difference in the world. That's our, your primary identity. And that's why, by the way, the Pharisees gave Jesus such a whole hard time because he hung out with who? The wrong crowd. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. When you introduced yourself to someone in the ancient world, you didn't lead with what you did for a living. You talked about your tribe or your extended family. If you were from southern Rome, you would ask, who are your people? In Latin, of course. But when you knew and I read this passage, our first instinct is to go to something like this. Oh, how wonderful. These folks had a church home. And uh, they would come together for an hour on Sunday morning, hear the pastor, check out some bald spots down front, and then go back home and pop on the TV. And then we call that fellowship. Greek word koinonia, right? No, that's not what they did. These people live life together. They had to. It's how they survived. It's where they found their identity. They would gather together as extended families and actual houses to minister to one another. They were a holy priesthood, encouraging one another and extending agape love, spiritual sacrifices to one another. And the people who lived around them in these in their neighborhoods at first didn't really want to have them there. Well, they were so chewed up and tired and spit out by the brutality of the Roman Empire 
and they would see the, the love and the care going on in these households. And the next thing you know, guess what? They wanted in on that, too. And these house churches, they grew and they grew and they grew. Sometimes I wonder if God is calling us now again to recreate family the way it was understood by those early Christian exiles so many years ago. Some Christian writers around the Western world are showing evidence that this strategy is working again. And the good news is that the church may be uniquely placed in our culture to rebuild this whole notion of extended Christian family. And all indications are that younger generations are seeking this because they are so tired of being taught and being treated like a consumer. And they're tired of the deconstructionalism that have robbed them of so much in the past. Some of you may know that there are eight missional communities that are here as a part of our church. They're scattered all around Greenville County, and they're doing exactly what Peter is calling for here. Now, at the moment, they're not gathering around together in homes in the same fashion as they were before COVID-19 hit. But they'll resume their life together again in the future when it's time. But in the meantime, do you know what they're doing? They're loving their neighbors. We have a number of leaders trained and ready to launch even more of these communities in the future. All of these MCs, as we call them, are literally building out by God's grace spiritual houses in Greenville. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about that in the future. In verses 6 through 8, Peter takes a quick side trip for just a moment to remind his readers once again about the fuel that makes any discipleship strategy go, and that is their God-given identity in Christ. He says this, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they will stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they are destined for. You know, they say that any good Presbyterian pastor can find predestination in every single verse in the Bible. And I could do that really very easily once more, but that's just too much low-hanging fruit, okay? So I'm going to leave it there, and I'm going to move on to something else, but just note to self. Here's the thing. In these verses, Peter says Jesus is two things both at the same time. He's both a beautiful, precious cornerstone that you and I can build our lives around, but he's also a stone that will make some stumble and reject him. He's accepted and rejected. He's hated and he's loved. He's ignored and he's followed. He's broken and he's beautiful. At the table, Jesus said, this is my body, which is what? Broken for you. And yet in the book of Hebrews, it also says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus took on the brokenness of our lives on the cross so that you and I might radiate the image, the beautiful image of God. So just like Jesus, you and I are both broken and beautiful. And that leads us to Peter's final part this morning. Verse 9, he says this, that you 
or a chosen people. The you there, by the way, is plural, not singular. So Peter is basically saying this. You all are chosen people. If you're from Pittsburgh, it would be yins are from are a chosen people. New Jersey, you skies, right? For those of you who know. Now, however we might say it in English, the truth of the matter is all of us together are being built into a spiritual household. Remember that from earlier? We're a family that relies upon one another during tough times, and, it, and we rally together when, when we're hurting. We're a royal priesthood. Each of us has the capacity, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives as believers, to, to minister and to disciple one another apart from a priest or a pastor, okay? The pastor's calling is to equip you to do that. Each and every one of us has the God-given capacity to follow God's call upon our lives, to touch the heart of the city in which we live or where we work or where we play. God's Word says we are a holy nation. God's special possession. Why? That you, again, all of us, plural, may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Let me see if I can sum up verses 9 through 10 for us. Because of God's great love and mercy towards us all, you and I have been called together to become a blessing people to the world around us, no matter where we are. But especially when we find ourselves in exile. Homework assignment. When you get a moment this week, read through Jeremiah chapter 29, specifically verses 4 through 7. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. And because of God's goodness in our lives, you and I can now testify to that goodness by declaring His praises and by extending His mercy and blessing to those around us. As the Keith Getty hymn we sang earlier says, we're being We're being shaped and fashioned and formed into the likeness of Jesus so that the light of Christ might be seen in us today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. A few years ago, before I moved to Greenville, I was involved in a situation related to one of the trees in my backyard and some of my neighbors. One of the trees on my property was leaning down and pushing down on my neighbor's Fence, And at some point, I'm sure that thing was going to break my neighbor's fence. But I didn't know that because it was way in the back of my lot and it was obstructed by other trees in a shed. Now, being the offer neighbor that I am, I really didn't know these folks too much except the time when the dad came over and he was pretty hot because my two boys were playing airsoft out in the yard and they were raining his backyard with airsoft pellets where his little daughter liked to play. Anyway. So one day in the summertime, the wife comes to our house in the middle of the day and she bangs frantically on our door. Now, neither Tracy nor I were there, but my oldest boy was, and, and he didn't answer the door, but he calls me and he said, Dad, one of our neighbors is banging on the door and, and, and she left a note and it asked that we would give them $100 because they have a tree cutter at their house now, and they can get a discount now if they cut our tree down along with the ones that the other ones that they're cutting in their yard. Well, I didn't even know we needed to have a tree cut down. 
So I'm like, what in the world is going on here? So I go home and I, uh, I look at the corner of the yard, uh, the backyard, and guess what? The tree was gone. It had been cut. And I have to confess to you that I was more than a little started. I, I mean, I come home and there's a stump in my backyard. And the note from the neighbor said, sure enough, that they wanted me to pay them a part of the cost of cutting the tree, $100. Well, I come into the house and the, the kids are having a field day with this one. <laughs> Dad, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And, you know, I wasn't sure. So I, so I walked around the sidewalk around the block to get to their house. Remember, I couldn't get straight to theirs because there's a fence in the way. And as I walked around the sidewalk, I just, I just simply asked God for wisdom. So I walked around and up to the doorbell and I rang it. Oh, I've got your attention now, don't I? They came to the door and their eyes were wide and animated. And as they started to blurt out the situation, you know what I did? I hugged them. I hugged them. Pre-COVID, you know. And they continued explaining the situation and how they were in a panic because the tree cutter guy was there. And if they did it right then, you know, they could get everything cut down at a discount. And anyway, my tree, my tree was going to break their fence anyway. And so I was actually saving money. And in the middle of all that, I pulled out a hundred dollar bill that I'd been saving in my desk drawer at home for emergencies. I pulled it out and I gave it to him. And I just said this, I want to bless you in a way that I know I can. Well, as I'm walking home, I figure out the boys have been talking in the neighborhood because people are coming out. And there's one neighbor, uh, next door neighbor of mine, single mom, who lives, she lives next door. And let's just say she's kind of the queen of drama in the neighborhood. And she's like, boy, what, what'd you do about the neighbors? And this is what I told her. I said, I said, I took that opportunity to love my neighbors. The same way I like to bless you when I help you mow your grass sometimes. Friends, let's make this clear. I'm not a saint. I don't get it right all the time. But what I have found, the longer I keep myself in God's identity training course for believers in exile, reflexively, without thinking about it, it just comes naturally. The more and more often I respond to things in a manner that reflects the mercy that was first shown to me. So here's the thing. The world around you and I invites us to be swept up into all kinds of strife and conflict, bitterness and polarization. As Peter says, it expects us to be malicious and deceitful, envious and slatterous. But that's not who we are. We're not like that. We've been discipled by Jesus to reflexively choose righteousness over rights. Sacrifice more than selfishness. In an increasingly harsh world that expects the worst from everyone, we as followers of Christ have an opportunity to be a countercultural people in exile. Born of the Word, shaped by extended families on mission, and intent on blessing the people around us wherever we live, work, and play. My friends, that is Jesus' discipleship strategy for believers in exile here in 1 Peter chapter 2. May you and I live into our calling to be Jesus' healers in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our country. Amen? Pray together. Lord Jesus, in a world that seems 
to be out of control from our perspective. Pandemics, political violence, whatever else that might be going on. We thank you that you have shown us who we really are. Broken and beautiful. Broken in the sense that because of our sin, we're part of the problems too. But also beautiful because you shine through us. Thank you for giving us wisdom and instruction for the living of each and every day. And may we remember that holiness is just as much about how we love our neighbors is as much about how we pray. And we ask this through Christ, our precious cornerstone. Amen.